Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Stolen Goods, Department Store 1949, The Workplace Mysteries, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. A zany yet sensible heroine sleuths her way into danger and romance. Stolen Goods is a mystery, comedy, and romance and spotlights more of the signature geek characters at which Clarence Buddington Kellen so thoroughly excelled, because it takes one to know one. Shenanigans, the word often chosen by loquacious Sherry Madigan, this time to describe what was going on in the linen department at Prothero's, the colossal metropolitan department store where she worked. Of course, Sherry was small potatoes at Prothero's, being only a nerdy copywriter in advertising and not entitled to an opinion. But Sherry put her whole self into a job and prided herself on her acute powers of observation. And she had a gift for standing on the spot where things were popping at the precise moment they popped, which was why she happened to be around when a body was found in the fitting room and why she overheard the cashier in the linen department sobbing hysterically, I'm next, over and over again. And the girl was right. Hers was the next body Sherry found. At first, no one paid any attention to Sherry's theories about the murder. But gradually, as the situation became more and more sinister, her deductions began to make more and more sense. Sherry was very much in the way. Things started to boil over just at the moment Sherry began to look at assistant buyer Roger Newsom with interest, and being an autodidactic geek, checked out a book on relationships and romance with some eye-opening 1955-style ideas on how to attract a man. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Stolen Goods. Chapter 1 The big street doors of Protheros were not yet open and would not admit the buying public for another ten minutes. Inside the great department store, on all ten floors of it above ground, and in the bargain basement in the bowels of the earth, salespeople were taking their places. Cashiers were ready to man their desks. Heads of stock were checking up. Buyers, who were not absent in quest of merchandise attractive to the public, were at their desks. And everywhere the normal day of the huge emporium was ready to proceed with system and dispatch. Over in personnel, the staff was waiting to interview and sort and classify applicants for jobs. Protection was ready to watch over everything from shoplifters to leaky sprinkler heads. And on the top floor... The control division, with its multitude of filing devices and tabulating machines, was set to record transactions, check credits, operate addressographs, keep books, receive and distribute incoming mail, and perform all the varied tasks, statistical and otherwise, without which a store which sold nearly a million dollars' worth of merchandise a day would be a hopeless welter of confusion." Carpenters, painters, wrappers, porters, matrons, hospital attendants, engineers, electricians, and mechanics were there, busy, necessary, but invisible. Everything was normal and serene except in linens, and linens, from buyer down to emergency saleswoman, was in a state of mind bordering upon panic. 
Mr. Portman, the buyer, and Mr. Newsome, the assistant buyer, had anticipated a successful promotion and had prepared for it foresightedly, but they had not anticipated what had descended upon them. Newsome had fought for days with publicity for coveted space in the Sunday newspapers and had been granted a generous display. There was nothing extraordinary about the advertising, either in the number of inches used, in the pictures, or in the copy. But it had touched off the unpredictable public, and the public was storming the store entrances. In a modern department store, you do not speak about anything so vulgar as a sale, and most especially of a bargain sale. What used to be a sale ten or fifteen or twenty years ago is now a promotion. Ordinarily, for such a promotion as Portman had planned, there might be three or four hundred people waiting for the doors to open. But this morning, there was a riot outside. Already, police had been requested to keep the streets open for traffic and to prevent the mob of avid shoppers from tearing each other to pieces. Portman was appalled. Just why the public should have been touched off by the announcement that twin-sized combed percal sheets were available at $3.37, or in large size, 90 by 180 inches, at $4.13, was one of those inexplicable things that come along to cause the mind of the retail merchandiser to totter on its throne. Or why should pillowcases, 45 inches by 38 and half inches at 92 cents, arouse the populace to frenzy? Anyhow... There it was, and it had to be faced and handled. All over the store, signal bells were pinging. Ping! 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 There was a touch of hysteria in their appeal. It was Mr. Went's signal, and Mr. Went was assistant store manager. Portman had not been able to reach Went in his office and had demanded signals. This was too big for him. He had to have help. Van Went, already alerted to the situation, stepped off the elevator and walked briskly toward the area about to be beleaguered by the horde of buyers. He was a slender young man with a face which one would have judged to be scholarly rather than mercantile or executive, and he manifested no outward signs of perturbation. His efficient eyes flitted over preparations made to handle the promotion, noting how aisles had been blocked off and barriers erected to confine and direct traffic. They were adequate measures to assure order in any normal crowd, but inadequate for an avalanche. He nodded courteously to Portman and Newsom and led the way into the buyer's office where he picked up the telephone. To the girl who answered, he said, Went speaking. Get orders through to delay the opening of the doors five minutes. Give me Pat Evans quickly, please. Almost instantly, Pat Evans, head of protection, was on the wire. Went speaking. Have you been alerted? And how, said Evans' deep voice. Why don't a man get notice of a fracas like this? That, said Went ominously. I'll find out. How about the entrances? I've got men there. We're putting up barriers to hold the crowd in lines to the elevators and escalators. Good. Better get up here with half a dozen men. And some two-by-fours, Evans said with a chuckle. I've delayed opening for five minutes. More than that, and we'll have a riot coming. Went turned to Portman. His face was expressionless. We're supposed to have notice of a thing like this, he said. I gave all the usual notice. I've made all the usual preparations. I've neglected nothing. 
I figured this thing would be a success if we sold three or four thousand pairs of sheets. I can't account for this. It's one of those damn things. How about stock? Portman waggled nervous hands. Went shrugged and turned to Newsome. Your baby, he said succinctly. Make your arrangement to get the merchandise down from stock. If you haven't enough, get it. I don't care where or how, but get it. Get signs up, Portman. All purchases limited to two pairs of sheets and two of pillowcases. He turned as a huge man, almost dapperly dressed with the face and shoulders of a blocking back, came striding through the door. Went wasted no time on greetings. Got carpenters, Pat. Sure, an extra two-by-fours. Pat Evans grinned. How many men? Six. All I can spare from downstairs. Blocks at the foot of all escalators? Sure. Take a look at arrangements here. Change them if necessary. How many customers do you want to let through at once? Can you hold a double line? Try it. Let through twenty. Gotcha, Pat said, and strode out into the department. Newsom was gone on his business. Portman remained. Now, asked Wint, tell me. I can't account for it. It's Newsom's promotion. I okayed it, of course. Nothing special in the advertising copy. It knocks me off my feet. He mopped his brow. Newsom never estimated anything like this. Newsom. He's handled it. Wint looked an instant at Portman and lifted his brows. It sounded like an alibi. He glanced at his watch. The animals are loose, he said. Get ready. We'll handle sales in the ordinary way until we can get a system set up. Like when we had the rayon stocking mob, he whistled. That was something. Twenty-five thousand handled in one day. We'll have girls at tables taking cash, making change, and handing out receipt slips. Customers present slips at the counter and take their merchandise. Here we go. In less than an hour, the system functioned, though tension did not abate. Wint stood watching as Evans' men firmly but tactfully handled the struggling mass, directing it through the maze, holding it in line, and maintaining at least a semblance of order. As the line neared the entrance to Lennon's, two pairs of powerful individuals armed with two-by-fours separated detachments of twenty at stated intervals and allowed them inside to pay their cash, take their change, and receive receipts entitling each to the merchandise bought. They proceeded from the cashier's tables to the counters, where with orderly speed they exchanged slips for wrapped packages and were gently urged on their way. Wint leaned on the glass top of a showcase and marveled. There were tall women, short women, fat women, thin women, harassed males, mothers in that jam with bawling babies. There were stolid women and quarrelsome women. There were those who accepted discipline and those who pushed and shoved all moved by a common motive, whether well-dressed or poorly dressed, the quest of what they considered to be a bargain. A voice at his elbow caused him to look downward. Standing beside him was a smallish girl with closely bobbed brown curls and interested brown eyes, and the sort of figure that might well have been employed in the more expensive side of women's wear as a model. When, she said, as, and if, I have me a baby, I'll leave it at home when I go bargain shooting. When, as, and if, answered Wint, you have a baby, you'll do a lot of things you wouldn't believe possible. Am I listening to the voice of experience, Mr. Wint? 
two babies. Her face was vaguely familiar, but he couldn't place her. What makes you a spectator? he asked. Oh, she said, I'm partly to blame for the surprise party. I wrote the copy. So this is your fault. What's your name? Sherry Madigan, she said. Her brown eyes alighted on the buyer standing across the store, and she frowned. Incidentally, she said, Portman is a stinker. Wint's eyes twinkled. Little girls, he said, who go around calling buyers stinkers are apt to lose their jobs. Oh, she said innocently, this isn't official. It's just casual. I take it you worked on the copy with him, Wint said. He was somehow more amused than the conversation warranted. She looked up at him and shook her head. Oh, it wasn't that, she told him. He didn't make passes. Lots of people who aren't stinkers make passes. Very nice men do it. A smart girl keeps score. If the percentage drops, she goes home and looks in the mirror. You're a smart girl? Very, she said. And I have a large mirror to edit myself in. I don't mean to end up a fitting room checker. What have you got against fitting room checkers? Not a thing. They're nice. They're fat and placid and tactful. Nice. I could stand being fat, maybe, but I'd simply screech if I turned out to be tactful and nice. What's your ambition, Miss Madigan, to be a cunning little hellcat? That, she said, would be going to unnecessary extremes. Say, a hellcat with mitigating qualities. It was an odd dialogue, and Wint wondered how he had gotten into it. Anyhow, he said, I wouldn't go working my way up through the degrees of hell cattery by calling Portman a stinker. But he is, she said firmly. He's a double stinker. Wint thought it was about time to end the conversation, in spite of the fact that he was interested, more as an individual than as assistant store manager. He wondered why this very pretty little girl had taken such a dislike to the linen buyer. But it would be infradig to ask. I haven't seen Mr. Newsom around, she said. Probably down in the wholesale district trying to supply the demand your copywriting seems to have created. Want to see Newsom about something? I just wanted to see him. You know, just to look at him. Oh, Wentz said, and dignity surrendered to something in this girl that would be difficult to describe. Is Newsom the boyfriend? I simply hate that expression, she said. Boyfriend. It sounds... Oh, it sounds scrubby. I hardly know him. Just over this copy. No, he isn't my boyfriend. Yet. Things really were getting away from Wint. Never before had he talked with an employee in anything resembling this fashion. And yet there was nothing wrong with it. This child was not being unduly familiar... She was simply abysmally natural and uninhibited. Yet she did not seem unsophisticated. He glanced down at her quickly, and her face with its high cheekbones and flat planes beneath, and its rather large mouth, and brows somewhat tilted upward at the outer ends, seemed rather more shrewd than artless. She was a contradictory young person, but interesting. "'Am I to understand,' he asked, "'that you have elected Newsom?' He isn't even on the ballot yet, she said. I'm just looking him over. 
sort of window shopping. And this, he said, is why Portman is a stinker. Only partly, Sherry said. Maybe only half. That was a half Wint could understand. In all too many cases, the buyer was a stinker to his assistant. He could deliberately stand in the way of his junior's advancement and opportunity. A real buyer, confident in his own ability and loyal to the store organization, would train his assistant, give him opportunities to learn and to prove himself and prepare for bigger responsibilities. A lesser man might be jealous, might be a store politician, might deliberately frustrate his assistant out of fear lest the younger man demonstrate ability. How valuable an assistant buyer became to the store depended so largely upon the opportunities given him by the superior and by the buyer's decent generosity in giving credit for valuable services rendered. Newsom been crying on your shoulder? Went asked. He hasn't even seen me yet. Not to see me, Sherry said. Our talk has been strictly copy. But a blind wombat could see that Portman isn't going to shine any spotlight on Mr. Newsom. And you, said Went, not sharply, but rather indulgently, in addition to not calling executive stinkers, had better keep your little nose out of store politics. Yes, sir, said Sherry with mock deference. Thank you, sir. She moved away a couple of little steps and then turned. I think you are very nice she said, and then clicked away toward the elevator. Mr. Wint found himself to be nonplussed. The emergency continued throughout the morning, and even at noon those who had places in line did not surrender them to go out for lunch. Newsom was meeting the requirements down in the wholesale district, and trucks loaded with sheets and pillowcases rumbled up to the receiving deck and were hoisted to the stockroom, and again transferred to the selling floor so that no shortage occurred and each customer was supplied as she presented her slip at the counter. It was an exhausting day, hard on backs and legs and nerves. The pressure became less acute, and by mid-afternoon the torrent had become a trickle. In the press of customers, there had been heart attacks, fainting fits, incipient hair-pulling matches, but these had been handled swiftly and deftly. Wint sat at his desk congratulating himself upon an efficient organization which had met emergency and conquered it. Portman was in a state of nervous exhaustion. Newsom, somewhat disheveled, stood in Portman's door and expelled a long breath. Well, he said, that's over. We set some kind of a record, what? Somebody, Portman said, and his voice was not pleasant, is going to have some explaining to do. So? asked Newsom quietly. Wint wasn't pleased. So? repeated Newsom. Do you know how far your estimate was out? On the right side, Newsom said, and there was the tension of restraint in his voice. We topped anything in promotions this department has ever done. We supplied every customer. We were caught short, but I found and bought stock to take care of everyone. Where's the kick? We disrupted the entire store. We had to call out the police. We had a mob scene. Portman stared at his desk. There'll be explaining to do. Where do you get the sheets and pillowcases, and how much do we lose on them? I got them at Mullendorf's and Greenelm's. And the price was right. We make money on every set we sold. Portman grunted. 
Next time, Portman said, I'll be a little more careful about accepting your estimates. Newsom stared for an instant with hard young eyes at his superior. Then he shrugged his shoulders. If Wendt wants any explanations, he said coldly, send him to me. Personally, I should be glad to try to explain a promotion that has been phenomenally successful. Good night, Portman. He turned and walked out of the office and back to the bank of elevators, shaken by resentment and a sense of injustice. He did not like, never had liked, Portman. From the beginning of their association as buyer and assistant buyer, Portman had made it clear that he meant to delegate no more authority than a necessary minimum, and that he was going to protect his own job by every possible device. Newsom was to be given no opportunity to demonstrate ability, and whenever possible he was to be made the scapegoat for any shortcomings arising in the department. Any credit he got he would have to fight for, and day in and day out he would need to protect himself in the clinches. As he strode now toward the elevator, he was compelled to admit that Portman had color of justice on his side in this matter. The promotion had been a tremendous success, but an unexpected success. Newsom had not foreseen its possibilities. He had not guessed public reception of the advertisement, and therefore Prothero's had been caught off base in a serious way. Portman could make an excellent case against him, and he would have no logical defense. The point in his favor was that his error had been in underestimating success rather than in underestimating failure. He punched the elevator button savagely before he noticed that he was not alone. A smallish girl was also waiting to be carried down to the street floor. He did not glance at her in his preoccupation. It really was, wasn't it, Mr. Newsom? She asked. Eh? What's that? He turned to look down at her. Quite a whoop-de-doo, she said. He focused his eyes on her. Oh, Miss... The name escaped him. Madigan, she prompted. Sherry Madigan. I wrote the copy, you know. Madigan. You might just as well start to remember it now. Why should I remember it? He asked. Because it will save you the trouble of asking who I am later. He spoke sharply, not because he was irritated with her, but because he was tired and harassed and a bit discouraged. Why should I ever care what your name is? he snapped. There are a great many reasons, she said serenely, and I shall not enumerate them at this particular moment, but they will unfold themselves. One by one they will unfold themselves. One of them is because I think Portman is a stinker. One of them is because I do not think you are a stinker. The rest can wait. Just then the elevator stopped and the door slid open. Newsom instinctively waited for her to enter first. Then he went and stood morosely in a corner. Sherry Madigan stood in the opposite corner, eyeing him slantwise in silence. The car reached the street floor, and she preceded him into the now-deserted grocery department. He was striding past her, but she kept abreast of him, taking two little steps to his one. He was aware of her, but determined to ignore her. She was breathless as they reached the street, Newsom turned to the left. Her homeward way led in the opposite direction. Good night, Mr. Newsom, she said. The name is Madigan, Sherry Madigan. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Stolen Goods. 
If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.